Textbooked. You're listening to Untextbooked. This is a history podcast for the future that gives young people like us agency and voice in our education. I'm your host, Gabe Hostin. I'm producer Gavin Scott. Follow Untextbooked wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. The year 1963. The Soviet paranoia of the McCarthy era is a recent memory, and the Cold War is in full swing. The civil rights movement is gaining strength with boycotts, actions, and marches sweeping across the country. And another movement is getting off the ground, the push for women's rights. Our episode today focuses on one woman behind that push, Betty Friedan. You might recognize the name, but could you tell somebody who she was? What did she do? Yeah, honestly, I have no idea who Betty Friedan is, but I'm excited to learn. I think that this is one of the paradoxical things about Friedan, which is that she was so central, and then in other ways, she's been erased. That was Rachel Steer, our guest on today's show. Rachel is the author of a biography of that very woman, Betty Friedan, Magnificent Disruptor. She's not surprised that a lot of people our age aren't quite sure who Betty was. But if you haven't heard of Betty, you still might have heard of her book, The Feminine Mystique. The specific messages in The Feminine Mystique is that there's a disease, if you will, that's attacking America, American women. And that disease is the problem that has no name. Basically, what Betty did in The Feminine Mystique was set out a space for women to talk together about things that they had been experiencing by themselves. The idea being that women were being exposed to stereotypes of all kinds from all different directions, like from the media, from psychiatry and psychology, from Alfred Kinsey, like in terms of their sex lives, from advertising. And so all of these different realms collaborated to persuade women that they should be housewives and start a family and have children, and that they shouldn't develop their own identity, their own autonomy. The Feminine Mystique was published in February of 1963. It absolutely took off. It was a hit, so it sold very well, millions of copies, and it made Betty a celebrity. It was also very controversial because no one had really spoken about women in public in this way, right? No one had advanced the idea that women were a category that needed attention the same way that, for example, it was thought at the time and now, obviously, that civil rights was a solution to address the problem of racism, right? Betty was trying to do something comparable for women. She considered women to be a group that needed the same or similar, anyway, similar remedies to civil rights. It's all about the timing, right? It was the right time for women to hear a message about how they were this group that needed a more expansive idea of themselves. And many women had just 
been sort of struggling by themselves in the post-war period, living by themselves. And now all of a sudden there's a book that reflected their experience. So many women read this book and sort of treated Betty as this, almost as a prophet. Women would come up to her for the rest of her life and they would say, you changed my life. Because reading the book made them feel like they were less alone, right? That there were other women who were in their same situation, feeling alone, feeling constrained by the idea of having to not be autonomous or not develop themselves or having given up their careers for their family or whatever. But it wasn't all positive feedback. An immediate critique of the book was that it wasn't quite about all American women. From the minute the book came out, it was criticized for not including Black women and working class women. Absolutely. What I would say about that is, as I said, first of all, people thought differently in those days, right? So I don't think Betty conceived of her book as being about white women. I think she thought it was about women as a group. And she does mention, for example, Sojourner Truth in The Feminine Mystique. Betty also thought, <laughs> again, this is it's, it was a different time. She was very adamant that the kind of revolution that was, she was talking about would be started by the middle class. She didn't think that working class women had the time, the free time, right, the leisure time, if you will, to start this kind of revolution. I know, a position that's very controversial today, that's very controversial. I guess for me, the takeaway is that the book was criticized from the very beginning for these things. In that way, it sounds like Betty was a product of her time. For sure, but exclusion is exclusion. Rachel thinks that lack of inclusivity is one reason the feminine mystique is less well-known in our generation. But some of Betty's other work, beyond the page, has stretched through to our time. It was a time of social activism, even in the early 60s, moving into right the late 60s when Betty co-founded the National Organization for Women, which is an independent national women's organization. I think people were really looking for a way, for new ways to live. And Betty was very on top of that. She was now's first president. The issues that she considered important were basic issues such as pay equality, reproductive rights, child care, and representation, equal representation in government, business, and so on. Okay, those were her basic issues. And I would say for the first two or two and a half years of the National Organization for Women, the organization moved forward advancing those issues, and they did so in many ways, many ways that we now consider to be basic to our well-being. Hang on, Gavin. But who was she as a person? How did she even get into women's rights in the first place? Betty grew up about three hours south of Chicago, in Peoria, Illinois. 
Her family was Jewish and her father had a jewelry store on Main Street and her mother was a homemaker. This was in the 30s, the 1930s, so about 100 years ago. And as one of the few Jewish families in the town, they experienced anti-Semitism. Betty experienced anti-Semitism. And so she had the sense as a child and a young person of being different. From there, she headed to Smith College. She gave psychology a go at Berkeley, but after a year, she dropped out to become a journalist in New York. She wrote for radical newspapers and women's magazines, got married, and moved to the suburbs. That's when something changed for her. She went to her 15th anniversary Smith College reunion, and she discovered that very few of the women that she went to school with were still working. And so she began to write an article which was kind of in defense of higher ed for women. She tried to write this article. No one wanted to publish it. She couldn't find a magazine brave enough to publish the article. But she kept writing and writing and writing until she had an entire book. That's what became The Feminine Mystique. Betty could be a difficult person, and she sometimes fought with her editor and publisher. There were definitely arguments about the shape that the book should take and how long it should be. But the feminine mystique nonetheless came into being, and Betty was galvanized to kick off a revolution, co-founding NOW, or the National Organization for Women, mobilizing women on issues like pay equity, representation, and reproductive rights. These were radical issues for the time, but not quite radical enough for some. In 1968, um, with the sexual revolution, many younger women were streaming into not just the National Organization for Women, but many other radical feminist groups that were springing up because by 1968, the National Organization for Women, women were beginning to see it as kind of middle of the road, kind of liberal, right? Betty, also you have to remember, she was born in 1921. So by 1968, she was already in her 40s. And many of the women who were streaming into the women's movement were much younger. You know, they were in their 20s or whatever. So when you're in your 20s, you have different concerns than when you're in your 40s and you're the mother of three children and you're married, right? That's sort of a perspective. But then I think Betty was committed to these basic ideas. And she thought that the, some of the ideas that the radical women were trying to introduce into the women's movement, she thought she worried that those would be a distraction in the media. Distractions like what? Like sexuality. You might've heard the phrase lavender menace before used to refer to the queer community. What you might not know, that phrase was coined by Betty Friedan. Betty used the phrase lavender menace in 1969 to describe lesbian women in the feminist movement who wanted to come out of the closet. She worried that having too many out lesbians advocating for women's rights would rebrand the movement as a bunch of man haters and turn the media against feminists. So 
her use of the phrase, the lavender menace in 1969, you know, that was an attempt to say to people, she wasn't against lesbians, but she didn't think that issues of sexual politics should be at the center of the women's movement. She worried that it would alienate mainstream women and that it would make the women's movement into a niche issue. And how did that work out? Rather than unifying the women's movement, the stance only fractured it even more. Many radical feminists judged her for that, right? They turned against her. There was huge divisiveness in the women's movement over this issue. Out lesbians who have been proud members of NOW left the organization. They formed new members to advocate for feminism that was more inclusive of sexual identities. Dang. But you said distractions, plural. What else was Betty so worried about? Her other concerns were a bit more personal. On top of everything else we've been discussing, Betty was in a violent marriage. When The Feminine Mystique was published, while Now was being founded, you know, Betty was fighting violently with her husband. And how did it affect her thinking about the women's movement? I mean, first of all, I think, again, we have to go back to the early 60s, the late 60s. Um, women did not talk about this subject in public. So there really was no way for Betty to say, I'm a victim. And anyway, she would never have said that. She would, ne she would never have seen herself as a victim. In fact, I quote this also in her memoir, she talks about, um, you know, two times that she was assaulted and she obviously does not consider herself a victim then either. And it's a really different time in terms of how women thought about this issue. Having said that, I also know that she was very concerned about how the women's movement would suffer if it came out in a big way that she was in this violent marriage where she was being abused or whatever. And so she tried to hide it with mixed success. Um, and I also think in some of her writing, it kind of seeps out. There's a speech that she gave at the Democratic National Convention in 1968, uh, which was like the height of her marital violence, where she talks about, you know, how women respond to this kind of violence by turning inwards. And maybe what women should do is turn outwards. Betty considered this to be, again, like the lavender menace and like some other things, she considered it to be kind of a side point and she worried that it would be distracting and if the media got their hands on it, it would distract and discredit the women's movement. In the end, it didn't end up discrediting the movement, but the secret did have an impact. So it did have an impact on her thinking too, but mostly she was trying to hide it. And then she got divorced in 1970 and it wasn't an issue for many years. And then she talked about it again in her memoir. That problem was that when the memoir came out, the violence became the headline. And really the headline should have been this major figure of the women's movement has written her memoir. And instead the headline was 
major figure of the women's movement, has written her memoir, and she was battered. Ultimately, legacies can be a tricky thing to sculpt yourself. So at the end of her life, I think she was very concerned that the advances that women had made in the 60s and 70s were being turned back, right? That they were being reversed, that there was all this work to be done. And I think from her point of view, she was like, why are people still talking about this book I wrote, you know, that was published in 1963? It's now 2006 or whatever, 2004. And, you know, we don't have a women president. We don't have, you know, all this Betty's legacy is perhaps not what she wanted for herself, but it's impressive all the same. Betty was a fighter. She devoted her life to advancing women's justice. And people, although she was a polarizing figure, I feel like she did get things done. She threw the first punch and she accomplished many things. That's the important thing about Betty is that she was a pioneer. She was a warrior. And I think, was she a saint? No, she was not a saint. But why do we expect our warriors to be saints? I don't think we should have that expectation, right? We should understand them for who they are, both with their shortcomings and their accomplishments. Rachel Steer is the author of Betty Friedan, Magnificent Disruptor. Thanks again, Rachel, for joining us on the podcast. So, Gavin, what are you taking away from this interview? Betty Friedan was a trailblazer. Despite what society expected of her, she spearheaded the first wave of feminism. This transformed how we view women and their roles in society. And how has this all changed your view on activism, if at all? There is no measure of activism. There are no inches or feet, for example, just based on where I have lived. If a small group of women come together in rural Oklahoma versus a group of women come together in New York City all to advocate for a cause, for example, women's rights, how can you measure the amount of their impact? Any amount of activism is good. If you have a noble cause, follow it. Follow on textbooks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. And if you like the show, write us a review. We'd love to know what you think of Untextbooked. Learn more at untextbook.com. Sign up for emails and become a member for added perks. Plus, every week, we share a glossary of terms and other learning resources designed for teachers and students. And for behind-the-scenes content, follow us on Instagram at Untextbooked. That's all for this episode of Untextbooked. I'm producer Gavin Scott. And I'm Gabe Hostin. Thanks to the History Collab, Fernanda Rain, and CeCe Payne. Untextbooked is produced by Pod People. Rachel King, Amy Machado, Danielle Roth, Hannah Pedersen, Michael Aquino, Shay Woditz, and Rebecca Shasa. Thank you.